today. Look at your neighbor and say, let it be today. Try again. Look at another neighbor. Maybe it was the neighbor. Look at another neighbor. Say, let it be today. You know, let it be today. It is a powerful, powerful way, I think, to draw us to very careful attention to this time that we're in. You know, I recognize each and every Sunday, um, there's just the thinnest of membranes between everything we carry with us inside to this place. And then there is this compulsion, I think, among many Christians to kind of hold it back and hold it in and in one way or another say, I'm okay. When deep down we have this sense that even the tiniest of pinpricks on our heart or on our mind or on our lives would unleash this great reservoir of everything that's backed up. And I'm not simply talking about the bad stuff, though I think we hold that particularly close. Bad, that sounds judgy. The difficult things, the painful things, the crises, the worries, the hurts. Also our joy. If there's one thing that song that we just heard, Hymn of Heaven, presented to us, it was a glimpse of what it might be like when in that time and in that space that the Apostle Paul calls, quote, face to face, all the holy words and all the holy songs and the fullness of communion and fellowship, if we can begin to envision that that can be, imperfect as it is, expressed here and now. And I'm not just talking about in 2023. I'm talking about here and now at 1101, October 15th, 2023. We gather for worship. We bring our whole selves, not simply to share with one another, though that is a part of it, but because God has called us here to this time for this meeting. As we share these words of scripture, an ancient hymn, I want you also to hang on to our theme hymn for the day, which we sang at the outset. This is my father or our father's world. We're going to hold the two together and hear how God might speak. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 24. I'll be reading this psalm. Psalm 24 of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what its faults and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face 
of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts is the King of glory. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. I want to tell you a little bit about Malty Babcock. No name shaming. His name was Malty Babcock. And Malty was the kind of person that we might describe nowadays as something of a Renaissance figure. He was a very gifted athlete. He was a talented musician. He was a dynamic preacher, well known for uh, being able to hold his congregation enthralled with his many illustrations and just the, the ways that he could use language to communicate so well. One of those people that had so many gifts, probably anything that he set out to do, he would do very well. He was a pastor. He was a pastor of a Presbyterian congregation uh, in Northwest New York State. And as he served that place, he would frequently go on very long outings around Niagara to strengthen his body and to strengthen his mind and to strengthen his spirit. And it was during that period that he penned a poem entitled, This is My Father's World. And in it, of course, he reflects on the sovereignty of God over every aspect of the world that Babcock would take in on each and every one of those nice long walks. Babcock died very early at the age of 42. And in his obituary, one of his close friends said this about him. To give you an idea of the temperament of Malpy Babcock, he saw everything in the sunniest light. And if you or I should have complained of a dark or dismal day, Dr. Babcock would be sure to see it less dreary than we would. Kind of reminds me, and there's a a story that's told about Alexander White, also a 19th century Presbyterian pastor who was known for his very inspirational sorts of prayers. And each and every Sunday, no matter what was going on, he would, he would offer something uplifting. And it's said that one of his congregation members, upon arriving on a very bad, no good, very rainy, dark, dismal day, walked into that Presbyterian church wondering, oh, I wonder what you know, Pastor White will pray today. And as he got up, his words of inspiration were as follows. We thank you, dear Lord, that not all days are like this one. But that cheerful disposition that Babcock presented to the world did not stand alone. I think it's really important to remember in that poem, he not only gestures but embraces the difficulties of life. In fact, this was written shortly after his firstborn son died in infancy. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is ruler yet. 
Babcock probably repeated those words as a prayer as he made those long walks through the Niagara. He repeated them to himself as he got out of bed and as he went to sleep at night on the very dismal and dark days. And I'm sure there were many because we know a few years later he lost his second son in infancy as well. That resulted in a real depression that was visible. It remained a feature much of his adult life. One of his therapies, and it still stands as a very good therapy and a very good effective intervention for those who are struggling with their own mental wellness, was to take these long walks. He'd return to see the likeness, the image, and to hear the voice of God in some way out in creation. This is my father's world. Even though he and his wife never had another child. He would repeat this refrain to himself, and in some way, that's why I think hymns like these endure, is because they're not sort of the saccharine sweet sentiment on the front of a Hallmark card, but these are words, these are verses that are earned by hard experience. And they express both the joy and the pain of living life in this world and finding rest, as surprising as it may seem sometime, in the presence and in the sovereignty of God. And so we read today Psalm 24, and I'm just setting something off, so I'm going to stop banging on the pulpit. I might be a little excited today. We read Psalm 24, and Psalm 24 is what scholars call a processional liturgy. And so it celebrates the entry of the people on pilgrimage into the temple courts, and it also celebrates the arrival of God to that same place. And so maybe this was a psalm of David that was penned as David brought the Ark of the Covenant into that temple space. Or maybe it was part of a festival that remembered that experience in 2 Samuel 6. But what we hear loud and clear, and the reason it was repeated over and over again in the worship life of Israel, is because it has these three parts that endure and that we also can carry with us. The first is a declaration of God as the Lord and as the creator of all. And so these opening verses of this ancient hymn assert that the earth belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord because it was created by the Lord. And that is reinforced over and over again the way Hebrew poetry does, simply by identifying the ways God went to work, calling forth order out of chaos. And that's very much at the heart of how the Bible talks about creation at all. Things were in chaos, and God established boundaries and waters and order to it all, that God draws things into one will. And in drawing all of these things together, God has given not only substance, but purpose to the world. God has given not only substance, but purpose for you, too. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
you are in it. Remember that. The second phase of this ancient hymn is a liturgy that is something that we sing and remind ourselves about as humans make their way into God's sphere, into this space where ultimately we will encounter God. And so that second movement, it forms a universal focus specifically on the temple in Jerusalem, and it calls to mind any place where heaven and earth kiss, where they meet, where they come together and intersect. Who can approach that kind of space, such as the space in God's temple? Well, they remind themselves, those who hold fast to the Torah, to the teaching of God, those with clean hands and pure hearts, it says. Now, I think it's really important to know at this point, and without getting into a Hebrew lesson, these are not the ritual words that talk about kind of ritual purity that you find in a lot of the priestly calling in the Old Testament. This is a different sort of words, or, or these are different sorts of words. These are the words that point to ethics. What you do with your life, after all, what you say you believe and what you show you believe are often very different things. It says, your life as it shows forth the truth of God's instruction and God's covenant love found in the law. And how did Jesus capture all that for us? but to say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So no wonder, it says, with the words of your mouths and the actions of your hands, don't speak falsely either about God or speak falsely to your neighbor. Our cleanliness, our, our purity, our striving to live ethical lives is not only for our own sake, somehow covering ourselves against reproach, but it is, as a way, it is a way to love our neighbor, those to our right and to our left. These are the people whose minds and whose hearts are sufficiently open to the fullness of creation and the other people who inhabit it. These are the ones who may begin to perceive God in this moment. And I think that's very important because the next movement in this entire psalm calls us to attend to the surprise arrival. God is coming. God is meeting us here. And I think that is a significant place to rest for a minute. We rest in these words because they're wrapped up in a question that's repeated over and over again. I tried to read it slowly so you could hear it. Who is this king of glory? The one who comes in, the one to whom even the great ancient doors will look up to welcome. Who is this king of glory? Well, we bring all sorts of assumptions about what a king or a queen or a monarch or a president or a prime minister or a dictator might look like or do, the sort of ways that they wield authority, the ways they enforce compliance, 
but as those who gather in Christian faith today, who read these words through the lens of what has been revealed to us in Jesus, we know that this is a king unlike any earthly king. This is a king who had all eternity and all power and all authority and all sovereignty and gives it up. And specifically in the person of Jesus, did not count sovereignty or equality with God as a thing that would be exploited, but instead, in the marvelous words of another song that was sung in the Philippian church, God emptied God's self into a manger, being born in human likeness, in human form became obedient, humbling himself, even to the point of death, the cross's death. Who is this king of glory? You know, I think this is ultimately a song for us about worship, where worship happens and what it might look like. It was just a couple of weeks ago, Ted, we sang... Um, these words, and I, I wrote them down, and I keep turning to them because I think they cast a very powerful vision for what it can be like to gather together as the people of God, whether it's in this space, or it's you all online, or there at Cheerio, together we sing a song that goes like this, come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry, drink of the water, come and thirst no more. Well, come. All you sinners, come and find mercy. Come to the table. He will satisfy. Taste of his goodness. Find what you're looking for. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son to save us. Whoever believes in him will live forever. Bring all your failures. Bring your addictions. Come. Lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. I'm definitely talking about worship now. And when George Barna, the great surveyor of people of faith, asked thousands of church-going Christians this question, have you ever experienced God in a worship service? Only a third of them answered in the affirmative that they regularly experience God in church. William Hendricks is a Christian educator. He wrote a book a few years ago called Exit Interviews. And it was a way of trying to get behind why this generation of neighbors is leaving church in droves. And he summarized the views of many of those who pulled away from worship and from a Christian community. Perhaps the most common complaint, he writes, was that worship services were boring. It was not just that these gatherings were not interesting. They were not worshipful. They did little to help people meet God. And so I'll ask a question and, and don't need to answer out loud today. When's the last time you experienced the presence of God in worship? It's a tough question. It might be hard to answer for some of us. 
But in many ways, I think one of the great needs for our church and for the churches of the world right now is not another program and it's not a new seminar and it's not a new study and it's not a new paint job. What's needed is an encounter with the living God that we desperately need, that life-changing glimpse of greatness and awe and wonder and power and mercy and goodness and loving kindness of grace, of mercy and forgiveness. That can happen in worship. We bring all of our own assumptions to worship, of course. When you mention the word worship, it brings up all sorts of images, usually based on your past experience or any preconceived notions that you have. And so we can continue to have that sort of conversation about what does it mean to be in worship or to worship. But a good starting point for us, at least as we talk about it in English, is to remember that our word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. That's our starting point. We don't worship God because of what we get out of it. But as Jesus says, we are to give God what is God's to give God our attention. You who may be parents know the priceless and irreplaceable experience of receiving the undivided attention of your child. You know what that feels like, especially as they get older, how precious it really is. Sometimes my mother will just text me and say, call me please. And I always do, eventually. It means the world to God that we would open ourselves up and to be present to this one who has spared nothing that we might live and breathe and move through this world. So to give God that sort of honor, to recognize God's worth and God's value and God's place in our church and to honor the claim that God has placed on our lives. It's not just a weekly pep talk. It's not a time to rally the troops. It's not a motivational seminar to make us feel better about ourselves. Worship isn't an alternative to the, the concert on Saturday night at Red Hat Amphitheater. It's not like a night at the symphony. A worship service, however it is constructed, is about connecting with God. And if you have an incredibly chatty and charismatic person speaking in the front, you have a stunning soloist offer pitch-perfect presentation of song. If that connection with God is absent, the church becomes dry and it withers. Worship occurs when the people encounter God who loves them, who desires a relationship with them and calls them to join God in this world. Shakespeare said, you know, the world is a stage and we're players on it and God meets us here. Robert Weber, uh, in his book called Worship Old and New, said it well. He writes that worship is a meeting between God and people. And so worship isn't kind of that which leads us in an encounter to God. Worship is the encounter with God. And when we worship God, whether it's on our own 
or in church, we come with this number one priority on our agenda, to meet God. You may have struggled for a little bit this morning to find the right socks, to match your tie, to match your outfit, to make sure. I have actually come to church, but this is how absent-minded I am, with two different colored socks on. One time I came with two different types of shoes. Sometimes we're a little absent-minded, but we try and check off all the boxes just to get here, to get here on time, to get here in the right way. Number one priority, you get out of bed, I'm going to meet God today. Because God's called me to this place and God has promised to enter. That's the promise of Psalm 24. It is the assurance of that hymn that is our focus today. Because it not only happens between these walls, of course, it happens any and every time our lives are open to perceive the presence and the entry of God into our lives. In Jesus, God promised us always to be present. At the end of Matthew, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And in Bible study this last week, we reflected on Jesus' promise in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. I am there in their midst. And so Jesus, in a sense, seems to tie a condition to his arrival in that special meeting, even though he has also assured the disciples he's ever with them. What's the difference? Or what might we expect when we gather with intentionality as disciples of Jesus Christ together. Well, maybe that promise at the end of Matthew is something like an assurance of God's the omnipotence, very much like the vision of Psalm 24, very much in many ways like the vision of this is my father's world. And there is more. Something that Terence Fretheim an Old Testament scholar once called God's tabernacling presence or God's manifest presence. That in a sense, when we gather together with that kind of an intentionality, God can remove those barriers or those blindfolds or unstop our ears or sort of massage our hearts a little bit in some way that we can have an extraordinary glimpse of God's own divine radiance. And so when Luke, for instance, in chapter 5, tells a story, he talks about Jesus, of course. Jesus' presence in and of itself is sort of like God's omnipresence with us. He's there in the middle of a crowd that's there to hear him teach. But then in verse 17, it says, the Lord's power to heal was in him. And the NIV captures it in a really fine-tuned way. The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Luke is showing us a bit of a difference. Yes, Jesus is present physically there with them. But Luke also notices something more. There's something different. He notices a power that Jesus' manifest presence was in attendance in that crowd too. God's revealed presence was there. And it was God's revealed presence that healed a paralytic that's brought to Jesus that day. And it was God's revealed presence that caused everyone to be astounded. And they were giving glory to God. They were filled with awe. And they said, we have seen incredible things today. 
is the presence I pray for and long for in worship. The extra glimpse, that clarifying moment, that point at which we can finally set down that burden that we have carried for so long, even if just for a while. We crave that. We want it. We need to feel it and sense it and experience it and taste it and touch it. And when we do, we are changed. And so I think the hymn and the song, they agree. We can go just about anywhere and everywhere. And with sufficient openness and expectation, we might see God behind every tree. We might hear God in every bird song. But the question and the challenge I want to leave with you today is in this community called Yates Baptist Church. When you gather with this group in your scattered location or in a space together, and someone else walks in, will they leave saying, I met Michael, met Walt, met Gigi? Will they leave saying, I met Jesus? Amen. As we conclude our swoops, that's okay, I'll, I'll go back here. As we conclude our service today, it is a time of response. It's a time to open our hands and express our generosity in our offerings. It's also an invitation for those who need to take a step of faith to begin following Jesus, to return to a promise that you made to him a long time ago. Perhaps it's to take a step forward and join with this congregation as a member, to be a part of the mission and ministry. Perhaps there's a special calling in the world and you need this congregation's help to fulfill it, whatever it may be, whatever it need be. As Mary Martha leads us now, consider your response. And as we sing our concluding hymn, I'll be at the front to receive you proudly present you to this congregation. We'll continue to grow together toward ever more mature faithfulness in this world.